When you were a, a parent of young children, and, and uh, some of you are not there yet, some of you uh, are there right now, did you ever, your children ever tell you how much they loved you or try to show you how much they loved you, maybe by, by, by squeezing you as hard as they could and say, I love you this much, and you kind of get into this little game with them, right, and you'd squeeze them back a little harder and say, I love you this much, and then they'd try to squeeze as hard as they can, oh, I love you this much, and it would just go on and on. Well, that happened in our family, too, and, and it kind of uh, became this sort of game where we just squeeze each other harder and harder and tighter and tighter, and the bigger they get, the harder they could squeeze, right? But after the squeezing was done and our boys started kind of learning about numbers, they would say, I love you up to 10, or I love you up to 20, and by the time they got to higher numbers, I love you up to 100. And, you know, they could just, they'd say, they want to tell you that they love you as far as they could stretch their minds to imagine, the highest number. But as it grew, it kept on getting higher and higher. It got up to 1,000, and I love you to a million. And then one of them said to me one day, I love you to Google. I said, which I said, I lo- what's Google? <laughs> I'd never heard of that. But I guess a Google is 10 to the 100th power, or 10 with 100 zeros behind it. Now my boys keep on talking about even higher, about Googleplex as even higher than that. And for that, I had to go to Wikipedia to find out what that was. And found out that a Googleplex is the number that you get when you get tired of writing zeros at the end. Anyways, I guess I should feel pretty good about being loved that much. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. In this section, the Apostle Paul, who's the writer of the Ephesians, will try to give us a description of God's love for his people. And he does that by stretching the limits of our understanding. Ephesians 3, verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge." that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within, uh, that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed press these words into our hearts. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be learners today, and not only learners, but then as we go on from here to be doers. We pray that you would strengthen us for that task through your Holy Spirit. Amen. If Paul were writing this letter today, he might say, I want you to comprehend God's Googleplex love for you. But even the words he does use are almost just as unimaginable. He wants us to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God, the love of Christ. And then he says that even that effort is futile. Did you notice what he writes? I want you to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You say, what? 
Stretch your minds to know God's love, he says, but just realize that God's love surpasses your ability to know. It just shows us the magnitude of God's love for sinners who were undeserving of God's love. It shows us the magnitude of God's love for the church in bringing together sinners who have now been made saints through the love of Christ. And so let's kind of take a step back and figure out what Paul is, is getting at in these verses. What was he trying to instill in the people who read, who read this letter and who would read this letter? Well, when we get to this section, this basically marks the end of the first half of Ephesians. In the entire first three chapters that we've been going through for the last number of months, Paul is trying to explain the depths and the riches of what God has done in saving these people. He really wants them to enlarge their view of God. In sentence after sentence, he just wants them to, to remember who they were without God and who they now are because of the fact that they are in Christ. They were dead, but now they have been made alive in Christ. By God's grace, they have been saved through faith. They had no hope. They were, they were far off. But now he says, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of that is in the first three chapters. He just wants them to know that. He wants them, those truths to, to penetrate, to be embedded in their minds. And so he keeps on adding grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, love upon love. You know, sometimes as, as Christians, as believers, as people who come and listen to sermons even, we just want to skip that knowing part, that, the head knowledge part. We just want to know what to do. We want help for the day-to-day -day stuff, how to deal with the kids, how to solve conflicts at work, how to deal with marriage issues, how to deal with anger. But listen, this is Paul's point here, I think, as well. Before we deal with all of that, we need to make sure that we are grounded, that we're solid in gospel truth. We're not just in our Christian lives after behavior change, behavior modification. We don't just want to be morally good people. Anyone can do that. But if you try to do that without the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, it all just becomes self-effort. And it's self-energized. But if it's grounded on Christ's work on the, on the cross, then we quickly realize that we can only do those things because of what God did for us in sending his son. We can only even attempt to have a good marriage because of the gospel, where Christ gave himself for the church so that we can give ourselves for our wife or our husband. We can only attempt to obey our parents because of the gospel, because the son perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. Well, Ephesians eventually does get to all that day-to-day -day practical stuff, starting in chapter 4. But only when we're firmly grounded in what God has done for us in saving us, saving a people unto himself and adopting a people as his children and putting us, placing us into a church. And that's what these first three chapters are all about. They're setting the table for how we're then to treat one another in our church and in our families. Why is he doing it this way? Well, I think it's because he knows that this church 
that these people are going to have to go out and live in the world. And their world in the city of Ephesus there was filled with, with all sorts of things that could distract them from their devotion to God. All kinds of things that might even uh, threaten their unity with each other. It was a city where every kind of vice was available 24-7. In that way, you know, it just was not that much different from our culture, even though we're separated by 2,000 years. So Paul is just trying here, all his might, with all the power he can muster, the words that he can muster, to, to, to get them to, to be so full of God that when the other allurements come, they will remember the extent to which God went to to make these other things look unattractive. And strangely dim as we sing in the light of his glory and grace. And so when Paul gets to the end of this first part of, this le- of his letter, he's, he's still kind of afraid that, that they might not get it, that we might not get it. And so he tells them that he's praying. This is going to be a matter for prayer. This is important enough to get on his knees. They have been saved, but they have not yet been glorified or perfected they've been saved from the power of sin they've been saved from the penalty of sin through Jesus' death on the cross but they have not yet been saved from the from the presence of sin that's the issue for all of us as christians we we still live in the world and because we still live in this world we're surrounded by temptations and i'm sure i could speak for you when i say that sometimes i feel very weak in resisting temptations They bombard us from every direction. And we all sometimes feel powerless to to resist them. And so here comes Paul with a final word before he then launches into the practical part of his letter in chapter 4. And what he really gives us here is a prayer for God to give strength, a prayer for power. You can see that there in verse 16. Look back at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, Then verse 16, that he would grant you, here's his prayer request, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now why would he pray for them to be strengthened with power? What's what's the opposite of, of strength? Help me. Weakness. The opposite of strength is is weakness. Paul knew that these people would be weak. They would be weak in their ability to live in the world. They would be weak in their ability to re- resist sin. And because this is a, such a serious is- issue in our Christian lives, Paul actually bows his knee before the Father. This issue will take more than just words on a page, a letter that he can write. This requires Paul to ask for God's intervention. God is the only one that can provide this kind of power. And where does this power to resist sin and overte- overcome temptation come from? comes from the knowledge of God's love. Knowing the magnitude and extent of God's love is power. As a church, we should pray for each other that we would all receive the power we need to really wrap our minds around God's love so that we can then resist sin and so that we can flee the devil, we can flee the temptations that come our way. Well, the implication of all that is if we if we drift in our affection for God, if we drift in our affection for God and our love for God, then we're in danger of falling prey to loving other things more than God and eventually of falling into sin. 
That's the negative way of saying it. Brian Chapel says it positively this way. He says, only an overwhelming affection for Christ will produce an overwhelming power to defeat sin. Only, only an overwhelming affection for Christ will produce an overwhelming power to defeat sin. So loving Christ, knowing the love of Christ, and defeating sin are connected. We need the power comes from the knowing. And so we always need to come back to the cross. As people, as a church, we can never stray too far from the cross, from God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. After Paul introduces his prayer, there in verse 14 and 15, and the one to whom he is praying, he describes him there as, the, as a father, which emphasizes his care. Then he starts to explain how God will grant this request for power. Remember that Paul's main request here is that he would grant you to be strengthened with power. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, the first thing you'll notice is that it involves the entire person of God. It will involve the Father, it will involve the Son, it will involve the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, it's a prayer for a divine expression of power. First, it says there, it's according to the riches of God, the Father, of God's glory. In verse 16. Oh, how we need the Father's riches to live this life. We need the riches of God to come to Christ. We need the riches of God to live the Christian life. This theme has come up over and over again in Ephesians already. You'll, you'll notice the, the riches of God or the riches of Christ in chapter 1, verse 7, in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Chapter 2, verse 7, so, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3, verse, verse 8. Paul was sent to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so it's a recurring theme here. It's a, and it's a theme throughout the Bible. Once we see ourselves as spiritually poor, God will give us the windfall of his amazing riches. Our sin has proven to be an unrepayable debt. But God in his kindness, God in his rich mercy, cancels that debt when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Christ. And because of that, rich grace from the Father, he sends us his Son, and then we are enabled, empowered to turn from the world and to love God. Well, the next thing he says in verse 16 is that this power comes through his Spirit. So we've got the Father, now we've got the Spirit. Through his Spirit in the inner man. It's according to the Father's riches and through the power of the Spirit that we receive the strength. The Father provides his riches. The Holy Spirit, the one who takes up residence in us when we become Christians, provides the power that we need in order to, to wrap our minds around God, to perceive God, the power to see Christ, the power to guide us into, into godly living. So we have the Father and the Spirit, but we also have the Son. Beginning of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So we have the Father providing the riches, the Spirit providing the power, but the Son provides his life. It is in Christ, by trusting in his life for us, that we have a new identity. 
This is a, a majorly important part of the gospel. In theological terms, we call this our union with Christ. This has come up over and over again in the first three chapters. This is something you just can't skip over. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him. We were, you can see the list there. I put all the, the passages on your insert there. We were dead in our sins, but we are made alive together with Christ. Christ provides his life in place of our own. To have any sort of standing, any sort of acceptance before God, we can't present God with, with our sin-infected life. We need to present ourselves to God in Christ. How does that happen? It says he dwells in our hearts through faith. If we want eternal life, if we want to go to heaven when we die, we need to put our total trust in what Christ provides. And so that's where this power comes from. It's not self-generated. In fact, it can't be self-generated. It must come from somewhere else. And that somewhere else is in someone else, namely faith in Christ's power, displayed on the cross and displayed in the resurrection. And so Paul invokes the Trinity, God in his fullness here in his prayer for power. And it's because of the all-powerful God that Paul can pray for the church to be empowered. And now we really start to see what Paul wants to happen here through these verses. He wants us to be filled up with God. He's going to say exactly that in verse 19, but he's already hinting at it here. He's praying for for power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Now that happens immediately by nature of our salvation. We are in Christ when we are saved. But Paul wants that to happen experientially as well. He wants us to know Christ's presence. He wants us to, to feel our new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. If you're a Christian, do you understand that you have been newly created? Same power that God used to create the world, he used to recreate you as a believer. Your old self has been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it is no longer I who live in Galatians, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. That new identity. Amazing. So because of what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has done. We now have the power to overcome sin. We have the power to resist temptation. We have the power to flee the devil and all his schemes. We have the power, we're going to find out next, not to, love the, to not love the world, but to love Christ more. That's what this is all about. Do we love Christ more? My Christian friends, make sure you ponder, make sure you meditate on the, on the riches of God that he lavished on you to make all of this happen. So the power comes from the Trinitarian God, but power secondly comes as we know God's love. There's power in the reception of the knowledge of God's love. And that's really the focus of Paul's prayer here, that they might grasp, that they might know, that they might be filled up with God's love. Look at, the, look at verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, we all want God's power, right? Well, it says here that we receive God's power by trying to wrap our heads around and by experiencing and by being filled up by God's love. This love of God is, is powerful in that it gives us a sense of security. So we already read about in Romans 8 there. We are rooted, it says here, and grounded in God's love. Rooted and grounded. These are ways of describing something that has a, a sure foundation. Our farmers know this image full well. They just finished seeding, and their prayer, and our prayer now on their behalf, is that they would now get a good mixture of, of rain and sun, mostly sun now, not snow, so that the seeds would get firmly rooted, so that when the plant, so that the plants can then rise up from the good ground, rooted in love, and then being grounded. That's more of a of a of a building picture, architectural picture. But it means the same thing. For a building to be able to rise up from street level, it's got to have a good foundation. You can see these if you go to Calgary or Edmonton and see new high-rises being built. I mean, the foundation, the hole that they start off with is just huge. They have to have a sure foundation. And so the power that we're after as believers, the power to withstand the winds of our culture, power to withstand the, the temptations of our world, and and of the, of the temptation that we have to love lesser things than God, which are all over the place, that power needs to have a firm foundation that, that finds it anchored in God's secure, unshakable love for his people. And so in Romans 8 we read, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, all the, the, the superhuman powers that we can't even see, not things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a secure love, my friends. Is your faith weak? Do you find it hard to, to, to resist the attractions of this world? Then be reminded of God's secure love. Grasp on to, comprehend, wrap your head around this Secure love that is unshakable. Well, God's love is secure, but it's also described here as indescribable. It's, it's vast, it's huge, it's immense, it's immeasurable. It's, you know, whatever adjective you'd like to use, it's enormous. It's a, it's a great love. And Paul prays for us to grasp, to comprehend, to know the greatness of God's love. Yet on the other hand, he says, this love surpasses knowledge. Listen, friends, the love of God is greater, in Christ, is greater than the dimensions of our ability to totally comprehend it. It is love to the Googleplex. The love of Christ goes farther than when we get tired of putting zeros at the end. The point is that it just keeps going. There's no end in trying to understand God's love, yet we are try we're supposed to try to understand it. It goes to infinity. It never runs out of adjectives. You have power when you understand that kind of love. Your trying to comprehend that love is power. Being continually filled up to the fullness of God is power. Well, the question is, how does it do that? How does that kind of grasping, that kind of knowing, that kind of comprehending, that kind of getting filled up with the amazing love of God, how does that strengthen us with power to live our Christian lives? 
And the answer is that the way we think about God informs the way we live. Here's what I mean by that. When you really start to grasp the love of Christ as he died on the cross, taking the penalty that you deserve for your sins, then you will be filled with the power of God to have the victory over sin, over the power of sin. Sin is powerful as well, but we can have a greater power than that. Greater is he that is in you than he that, lives in, that he that is in the world. On the other hand, the less you perceive of the love of God and the less you experience the love of God, the lesser will be your ability to resist sin. And so this comes right down to the basics. It comes right down to our affections, to the things we love. The more we're filled with the love of Christ, the more we'll be able to drive out our love for the world. The less we are filled with the love of Christ, or the knowledge of the love of Christ, the less we will have power to drive out our love for the things of the world. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand here. There is power in perceiving and comprehending and knowing God's love. What's love got to do with power over sin? Everything. The passage is talking to believers here, and Paul wants these believers, these Christians, to have power over sin, and he's saying that love for other things cannot thrive in a heart that's filled up with love for Christ. And he's saying that love for other things will not have life. They'll die out in a, love, in a heart that's filled with love for Christ. Those attractions will seem like nothing when compared with what God has done through Christ. Love how the writer of Hebrews describes the faith of Moses. It says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt or than the surpassing pleasures of sin. It's Hebrews 11, 25, and 26. Christ's love was not pretty. It was a reproach. It was not in any way attractive. The love of Christ, the reproach of Christ, took place on a, on a wooden cross. It took place on a cross where Jesus was deserted by all his friends, all his closest friends. He was mocked by his enemies. Our Savior died, bloodied and beaten, with just a few soldiers hanging around, casting lots for his clothes. But oh, how rich was that sacrifice. How wide, how long, how high, how deep was his love. He died for the sins of all, of all who would ever repent and believe. His reproach was greater riches than anything this world has to offer. It was greater riches than the temporary pleasures of sin, than the treasures of Egypt, which were immense. Knowing, really knowing Christ's love will give you power over everything else that is vying for your love. What's love got to do with power over sin? Everything. We will be partly judged on what we treasure, on what we love. Do you love God or do you love the world? What do you love more than God? Let me put it another way. Is there anything you prefer more than God? In many ways, this is a test of Christianity. Most of you in this room would say, you are Christians. 
But what if I were to ask you what place God has in your affections? God's first, very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. None. Nothing can, become, can come before God. No other gods. Well, some of you might say, ah, that's the law. We're, we're past all that. That's the Old Testament. We now live under grace. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus makes it even more clear and more daunting. When the Pharisees, in fact, when a lawyer, one who is an expert in the law, asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The first and great commandment, according to Jesus, has to do with your love for God. And so you might say, yeah, I love God. But can you say that you love him with all your heart? With all your soul? With all your mind? If you put any one thing before God in your affections, you are guilty in that way of breaking God's greatest law. Might be some of you here today that think you've done pretty well on your own without God. But you need to deal with your creator. God created you in his image, and as your creator, he has every right to demand first place in your love, in your affections. Romans 1 describes people who do not acknowledge God, acknowledge their creator as exchanging the glory of God, which is another way of describing love for God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so I would encourage you to turn from your sins and to acknowledge God as your creator and to worship and to thank him as the one who is your greatest treasure. Once you admit that you have not kept the greatest of the commandments, and that's just the first of the list, never mind all the rest, you can turn to Jesus Christ once you admit that. And turn to Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who is a perfect God and perfect man, and acknowledge him as the one that kept every one of God's commands. And that would then, on that basis, die for your sins. God, in his great love and mercy, sent his son to be your savior. Once you do that, you will receive power to love and to worship and to honor God as he deserves. For you that are Christians, let me just ask you if you feel a certain sense of weakness, of powerlessness over the things that give temporary pleasures. Seems like there's at least one time every day where I look at myself and when I look at my loves, take inventory of my affections, and I say, Sudfeld, what are you doing? It seems like every day things are flying past us, begging for our time and our love and our affection and our attention. It's different things for each of us that keep us from esteeming our Creator. For some, it might be addictions to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography. And you feel a sense of powerlessness, a sense of weakness to be able to overcome that. Yet, this says that we can be strengthened with power when we desire to know Christ more than we desire those things. For some of you, it's the love of money. For some of you, it's the love of leisure. You live for that next vacation or for that next golf game or for retirement. For some of you, it's that next purchase, a, whatever it is, a new truck, new set of clothes, new ring. 
All your energy is poured into that. For a lot of us these days, it's all the digital stuff that can just hoard our attention. You know, it used to just be that the TV was at the top of the list. But if, if we could just get ourselves to turn off the TV once in a while, we'd be doing okay. But now it's all the other stuff. Texting, Facebook, Twitter, Xbox, Internet, iPhone. Name it. And I'm not trying to be legalistic here. All those things have value. God has given us those things if they're used rightly and prioritized rightly. But they can quickly become something we put ahead of our straining to comprehend the love of God. Even as professing Christians, if we're not careful, we can start to love created things more than the Creator. If you're anything like me, sometimes you feel very weak in that struggle for your affections. You feel weak in your struggle to love God more than the things of this world. But listen, friends, we don't need to. We have ample power, God's power, resurrection power to win that battle. It's all there for you. You have been rooted and grounded in God's love. Now we need to go back and to grasp the extent of God's love. Well, the solution very quickly for you and me is, number one, to get, beneath, get back underneath the cross. When we strive to comprehend the far-reaching love of Christ, it will drive out our love for things of the world. Solution is to comprehend the love of Christ. Another way of saying that would be to survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. The end of one of those verses to that song goes like this. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Another solution is kind of hidden in this text. It's, it's to utilize the church, utilize each other. Part of the way that to comprehend the love of Christ is through the body that you have been adopted into. Verse 18 says, we need power, you need power that you may be able to comprehend with the saints. Did you catch that? What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Let's help each other with this. This is why we gather for church and this is why we have care groups. This is why we have prayer meetings. It's to encourage each other. So as Hebrews says, that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we try to go it, on our, uh, go it on our own, as lone rangers, we think we can do this on our own, there is a danger, the implication of that verse is that we might get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need each other. And then a final solution is to pray. That's what this entire section is. It's a prayer by Paul for this church. This church that is susceptible to weakness. A prayer that God might strengthen them with power to grasp his love and to really know his love and to be filled up to the brim with his love. Pray that for yourself and for your church. And just in case we doubt our weak prayers, and we might, our prayers are weak even. Look at verse 20. Paul ends this section by writing that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Is that great or what? Even our weak prayers. God can do far more abundantly beyond. I mean, that's bad English. But Paul had to make up words for what God is able to do. He is able to do infinitely more than you can ask. He's able to do infinitely more than you can even think to ask. Well, how do we respond to a God like that? We must give that kind of God glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all 
generations. And I'll end with that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for reminding us of the, of the vastness of your love. It goes beyond all that we can see, think about. Lord, we only need to look at ourselves and realize that your love had to stretch a long way. Lord, I pray that you would help us keep our minds and our affections straining to know you, straining to understand Christ and his sacrifice for us. And Lord, I pray that that knowledge of your love would keep the attractions of this world in proper context, that they would pale in comparison with what you have done in Christ. And even as we pray now, Lord, we thank you that you are able to do far more abundantly beyond all that I am even asking right now of you. And so we say again, to you be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.